Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today we have a guest. I think this is his fourth uh, visit onto this podcast. Kevin J. Anderson is an amazing friend, not just an author, but he's an amazing friend. Uh, we've been working together, I guess, for nine on 30 years. Something like that. Yes. So just a little more on, on his statistics as an author. He has published more than 175 books, 58 of which have been national or international bestsellers. He has written numerous novels in the Star Wars, X-Files, and Dune universe, as well as unique steampunk fantasy novels, Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives, written with legendary rock drummer Neil Peart, based on the concept album by the band Rush. His most recent novels are Gods and Dragons, Dune, The Lady of Caladan, and now, which we're going to talk about today, most recently, his Clockwork Destiny. Welcome back, Kevin. I'm so glad to be here. It's always good to talk to you. Absolutely. I'm so glad that uh, we're going to be able to get a lot of people to know about this next book coming up. Well, it's, it's a really special book to me. It really means a lot. I mean, you, when you throw out the numbers, like 175 books and all this, that you just think, well, I'm just knocking books out. But, you know, every one is special to me in its own way. But this, the one we're talking about, Clockwork Destiny, is just really near and dear to my heart. And I'm, I'm very passionate about it. And that's why I want to like try to get other people to know about it. And, and I'm just, I'm so excited about it. I want to talk about it. <laughs> well, that's great. So let's, let's go ahead and we'll hit this first and then we'll go back and do the, the history and, and whatnot with Writers of the Future and you as a sure. judge and whatnot. So on, on this book here, this is, is this the third and final of the trilogy? Yeah. So in, I think, 2011 or so, uh, Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush, he also is the lyricist who writes all of the words to all their songs. Um, he's been a friend of mine for over 30-some years. And for their what was going to be their last studio album called Clockwork Angels. Now, I'm assuming everybody's heard of Rush. They've been around forever, platinum band, rock and roll hall of fame, uh, great, Amazing great, band. great band. Um, yeah. Anyway, so they, in front, they're from Canada, and they've always had sort of science fiction fantasy concepts in their songs and lyrics. And when I was just a kid, when I was in high school, I got a bunch of Rush albums through my the record club subscription. They just all showed up, and I'm playing them, and and I got really hooked on the music of Rush because they're like 2112, one of their most famous albums, is this big dystopian science fiction Big Brother kind of of story, and and they've got songs about you know ships going into black holes and the Greek gods coming back and fantasy quests and and it's just when I was this this nerdy high school wannabe writer, they just inspired me, and I wrote a bunch of stories kind of based on their lyrics and they were as bad as you might imagine they might be <laughs> but it did I kept being inspired by their music and I kept listening to that to their albums and when I got to the point where I was writing my my big first novel called Resurrection Inc Rush had just come out with a new album called Grace Under Pressure and as I'm plotting my novel I'm realizing that like all the songs on this album it's like the soundtrack to the novel I'm writing and so I thought that's kind of neat. Let me work on that. So I kind of made sure all of the lyrics snuck their way into this book, which I then sold and Signet Books published it. And when it came out, I put an acknowledgement in the books that to the three members of, of Rush, Neil Peart, Getty Lee, and Alex Lifeson for this great album, which inspired me to write the novel. And I, when I got my author copies, I signed a copy to the members of Rush, and I just mailed it off to their record label, just, just some blind package. And about a year and a half later, I got a letter from Neil Peart that he had, it had gotten to him, and he got the book, and he read it, and he really liked it, and he wrote me a fan letter. And at the end of it, he said that if you would like to keep corresponding, I'd be interested in that. So... Of course, I kept corresponding, uh, and we had a friendship for over 30 years. And when Rush was planning their their album, Clockwork Angels, um, it's this big whole story with airships and a watchmaker and alchemy and pirates and lost cities and this big, wonderful steampunk adventure. And Neil was brainstorming the story with me as he was writing the lyrics. And then finally, he 
uh, decided he wanted it to be a novel as well, and he asked if I would write the novel with him. And, you know, uh, duh, of course, I would love to write the novel with him. The ironic part was, so here... I myself have 23 million copies of my books in print, and as you said, 50-some bestsellers, and I've written in Star Wars and Dune and X-Files. And Neil is from the band Rush, which is in the Guinness World Records for more platinum albums than any other group in all of history. And they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're like huge, mm -hmm. huge band. So... I, best-selling author, am working with the drummer based on this album, and they're going to go on this tour of sold-out crowds all around the world, and we want to do a book that they will sell at the concerts along with the T-shirts and everything else. And none of my publishers wanted to touch it. They just went, yeah, we don't really see what this book is all about. We don't get it. And we were, like, baffled. Like, how can you not see what this book is? And so we went to a, a Canadian publisher, ECW Press, who had published some of Neil's other uh, nonfiction books. And they loved it, and they did a fantastic job. And Clockwork Angels came out first week out the gate. It hits the New York Times bestseller list, and, and it won several awards. And, and then we just loved this universe. We loved this steampunk, uh, the characters in it, uh, the ideas in it. And so a few years after Clockwork Angels was published, we just kind of kept bouncing around. Maybe we should do some short stories about some of these interesting characters. And and we just kind of kept talking about it and didn't really, we didn't want to just do like a short story collection. How are we going to figure this out? And finally, I figured out this whole frame story, kind of a Canterbury Tales thing that would tie the short stories together with the overall novel. And that was called Clockwork Lives. And we put all that together. Um, that was my personal favorite of all the books that I've ever written, Clockwork Lives. And it won the Colorado Book Award, and it's got all kinds of great attention. It's a beautiful book that also ECW Press did. Uh, Neil wrote me a letter after reading it. He said that, uh, Kevin, this is surely your finest work. So when you have like your your idol telling you that this is your <laughs> finest work, that's that's great. So after finishing Clockwork Lives, there was a, a story in Clockwork Lives that kind of set up this interesting conversation with me and Neil. He said, well, what if we, what if we do this? And what if we take our character, Owen Hardy, on, on this adventure up in the Great White North and finding the source of the quintessence under the Northern Lights? And, and uh, one of the most famous Rush songs from one of their early albums is called Bitor and the Snow Dog. It's about, you know, good and evil and this giant snow dog and a prince of darkness. And, and we said, yeah, we can even bring Bitor into this story. And and we just started brainstorming what would be Clockwork Destiny. This is our third one. And But these Clockwork books, I mean, I'm a prolific writer. I write three, four books a year, and I'm always busy, and Neil was touring and doing all kinds of things. So, but the Clockwork books are always like special projects to us, really close to us. And so we, you know, there's no hurry on it. We didn't have a contract. There was no deadline. And then Rush went on their 40th anniversary tour. That was their grand their grand finale tour, that the R40 tour. And so Neil was busy with that tour. And we just, we I gathered all these notes for Clockwork Destiny that he would come up with an idea. And whenever we'd get together here in LA, we'd go out to lunch or something and, and we'd noodle a few ideas mm -hmm. and I'd, I'd keep track of them. But, but, and then after R40, Rush retired and Neil retired. And, and, you know, we weren't in a hurry. We had, that we had all the time in the world. Uh, until we didn't, right. because very shortly after Neil retired, he was diagnosed uh, with a terminal illness, uh, brain cancer, and he was—he had a few years left to live, and he knew that that he wasn't going to be around to see this book finished. And we talked and we brainstormed, but you know, when I visited him, it wasn't like spending lots of brainstorming sessions. We had other things to talk about. I mean, mm -hmm. we were friends, and and each time was like kind of weighing on me, like, is this the last time I'm going to see him? But we plotted some really cool ideas, and I kept all of this stuff. And Clockwork Destiny is all about um, fate and the legacy you leave behind and your destiny and, and death and dying and, and, and what happens. And it just seems so appropriate, but kind of so weighty. And then uh, Neil died uh, two years ago in January. 
and I came out here for his memorial service, and I had all of these notes for Clockwork Destiny, and I, I kind of took them out and looked at them, and, and I, I couldn't do anything. I just looked at them, and I put them away. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I can't deal with this. I can't write this book. Um, I don't know that I could ever write this book because it's, there's so much stuff attached to it. And I, I literally put it away in a file drawer for a year. And finally, on the anniversary of his death, I pulled them out and I started looking at them again. And I was like, this is some really good stuff. And I felt like I really owed it to him that I have to write this book. But Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives are two, two of my absolute best books. I mean, there's 175 books, but these are like two of the best ones. Mm-hmm. So when you set the bar that high, you get this, man, how do I ever do that again? How do I ever get that much energy again? How do I ever get that much like depth and, and everything into it? But this was my last book with Neil. I had to. And I, I just really hesitated for a long time. And finally, I contacted uh, his wife, Carrie, and I said, so, Carrie, you know, Neil and I were working on this, and we have a whole bunch of notes. And, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of torn here that, that I'm afraid to write this book, but I kind of have to write this book. And, but I won't do it unless you're okay with it. And she gave me her wholehearted blessing that, please, go ahead and do it. And, and that was kind of what I needed. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at I, – I reread Clockwork Angels – which is really hard because I did the audiobook and Neil Peart himself read the audiobook. So I was listening to eight or nine hours of Neil's voice reading this book. And then Clockwork Lives, I did that audiobook, which is a mix of voices because it's a collection of stories. And I just got all fired up. Everything got ready. And it was um, like a year ago in February that I took off and I, I had to write it. Now, I've talked on this show before uh, about it, that I do most of my writing with a digital recorder. I go out hiking, mm-hmm. and I just go walking around, and I have my notes, and I just dictate my stuff. One of my favorite places in the whole world, and one of Neil's favorite places, in fact, I introduced it to him, uh, is the Utah Desert, the Canyonlands National Park and Arches National Park and everything. And so a year ago, February, um, my wife, Rebecca, gave me permission. She said, just go out to Moab. And I knew I had to write this book. And so I went out to Moab, Utah, where all these Canyonlands parks are. And I stayed a week and it just, it just poured out of me. I wrote half of this novel in one week. Wow. And it just like, it, it, it was like a race car spinning in tires and finally the green light goes on. And it was, and I wrote it and it just came out and I, I'll, confess I was writing with tears pouring down my face sometimes that it just really really was what I needed to do and it's what what came out and I wrote the whole the entire novel from start to finish and the complete edit in 30 days wow and I think it's just some of the best work that I've ever done and uh, ECW Press is going to release it uh, in June first week in June um, because it was supposed to be earlier, but it, um, as you can see here in the Invisible Podcast, it's a beautiful leatherette cover. It's embossed. It's got tipped-in illustrations. Uh, there were supply chain problems. They couldn't get the leatherette the cover. Yeah, right so now. it's like they had scheduled this book, but then they couldn't get the leather for the covers, and so they had to postpone it. Uh, so At I've least got they had paper for the book. Well, that's also a major. That's problem. also hard, but it's as. John can testify. The book just looks absolutely, absolutely gorgeous, beautiful. And uh, what I've got, I can I can plug it. We have a, a web store called Word WordfireShop dot com, and you can pre-order signed copies there. And we've also got um, slipcase special editions with numbers and uh, uh, book plates and stuff in them. But um, or you can get it on Amazon or anything sure. else you want to. But the signed copies are on WordfireShop dot com and. This is just, it's so beautiful. And just last night, I went out to dinner with uh, Don Perry, who's the drummer from Jethro Tull. He's a very close, close friend of both mine and Neil's. And we went out to dinner, and I surprised him by giving him the very first signed copy of Clockwork Destiny, because Don Perry is actually a character in the book. He's Captain Perry Don. Uh, and. <laughs> 
so he's thrilled to be to be in there and acknowledged and and so I'm just you know I, I'm always satisfied with the books I write and I I like entertaining people with stories but every once in a while something comes along that you know this is just like special to my heart and this is something I really needed to do and just just this morning I made a little pilgrimage down Hollywood Boulevard and it's early morning in Hollywood so there's like nobody out on the streets right. so I went down to the Rush Star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and I took a picture of Clockwork Destiny on the Rush Star down on the Walk of Fame so um you'll see that on my social media I'm assuming that's going to be my profile picture for quite a while <laughs> well that's an amazing story there and just how this came to be and so in terms of, is it best for a person to start off and get a, a ramp up for now, get the first book, second book, and then to be able to read this yeah, one? Yeah, um, Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives are kind of companion books, and you really you can read either one first. But because Clockwork Destiny is the story that ties both of those together, it's it's kind of better to have a background in both of those. I mean, if you read them in order, they were published. It's Angels and then Lives and then Destiny. But um you know, I'm just just find one and look at it because they're really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is, and it's amazing. Just with that much creativity going into it as well, you know, it's going to be something good. Well, and since we're doing this podcast, it's kind of another interesting thing. I mentioned earlier that Neil Peart narrated the first audiobook of Clockwork, which Eastern. is what I'm going to listen to. Well, and I kind of felt that if Neil did the first one, that I should do the last one. And so I arranged studio time. I got an engineer, and I hired um, the – well, I got the studio and all the work. And so I narrated Clockwork Destiny. I spent 13 hours in the studio just narrating this book. And It's um, not what anybody might think it is yeah. to put together a voice talent production of a book. Oh, it was so much more work than I, I thought. You would just sit down and, and read things. But Not. but it's 13 hours behind the microphone and then 13 hours listening to all these tapes and marking every time you burped or put a wrong word in or something. And then you got to go in and, and uh, re-record it. And, and the... <laughs> So the funny thing is, you know, we have characters, and you have to get into the character's voice. Mm -hmm. Like, the watchmaker has to have a, a dark and, and tight voice. But if I miss up, a, like, a, a sentence in the middle of a watchmaker monologue, I've got to get into that voice again to get that one sentence fixed. And it was it was a great experience, but, boy, it was time-consuming. But I'm very proud of having done it. I don't regret a second of it. That's great. But that, that's a good point you make about people— not knowing another professionally, oh, that's easy. You just sit down. You just you sit down and type a book. And, you know, yeah. how hard is it to just write a book? <laughs> yeah, how hard is it to just win the Super Bowl? And <laughs> yeah, you know, um, money for nothing, the chicks for yeah. free. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I yeah. remember that song. Yes. So um, yeah, I'm definitely talking about. I'm, I'm definitely close. I mean, I have so many books I, I'm reading all the time just to keep up on the podcasts. Mm -hmm. And fortunately for you, I've read enough of your books, and I've known you as a friend for so many years. It's easy to go in and just talk to you about virtually anything. Right. But sometimes on the new but, authors, but these are I, these are really special. I, I yeah, hope I'm, you'll take I'm, the time to. I'm do now this. sold on wanting to, you know, park some of the other because I've got more projects ahead. That I, I won't do a podcast interview with somebody that I've not read their book. Mm -hmm. You know, at least one book just to really get a. Well, feel you know what really annoys me these people that could just read a book a day, and I'm like, it takes takes me a month to read a book if I'm actually reading the pages. Yeah, and so I'm I keep myself in shape. I have a gym in my house, and like every, I work out three four times a week, and I have my headphones on or my earbuds in, and I'm listening to a book when I'm lifting weights or yeah. doing something. And, and sometimes if I got a long trip, I like to listen to it. And it's, it's a different way of, of receiving a story because you can't analyze the sentence structure and everything. But, you know, I, I prefer stories that are engaging and entertaining and it keeps my attention. And I'm just now finishing a Jonathan Mayberry, Joe Ledger novel on my audio. And, and you know, they're action-packed and big fight oh, scenes totally, and yeah. great stuff. And, and uh, you know, if I, I once, I felt like I needed to catch up on some of my classics reading. So I did the audio book of a Dostoevsky tr crime and punishment. <laughs> well, that's not a good audio book to do. <laughs> those, those are really hard to read. So that's not a good audio book. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, anyway, just, off the subject. Sorry. Yeah, but because I just recently did an interview with Hugh Howie, mm-hmm. and um, interestingly enough, he said he had he had um, read Battlefield Earth eight times. He said, That's his favorite, one of his favorite science fiction books. And he's always telling people to read it. For him, that was he read it eight times. Yeah, that's like ten million pages. <laughs> yeah, wow. But he said now because I know it so well, it, it, I read it really fast, and I'm still reading every word. I just I know the story, so it just goes very fast now when he, when he reads it. But I, I was. Um, I was very happy to be able to interview him, and he's mm. he's very much got a, a, an amazing trajectory as he has two projects oh, he's, now on he's TV. He's changed the whole publishing world, just like Brandon Sanderson just yeah. changed the publishing world yeah. with all of his Kickstarter stuff. Um, but I, I do, when you mentioned Battlefield Earth and um, some of the other stuff that I was talking about, there are some writers who are storytellers, and they tell the story, and you get engaged in the story, and it's, it's almost like watching... TV in your mind. You're just like getting the story. And I like to think my prose is like that, that it's that Algis Budras, who used to be the um, the head of the Writers of Future contest, reviewed my first novel, Resurrection Inc., the one that, that was inspired yeah. by the Rush album, uh, for fantasy and science fiction. And this it was a beautiful review. And one of the quotes that I still use, that he put, that Anderson's prose is so transparent, you forget your reading. And I thought that is the best make. compliment ever. And so, um, Battlefield Earth, you're not studying the wordplay and similes. You're engaged in the story. And that's what I want you to be with my stories. I, I want you to not be going, oh, look at he put the comma in an interesting place there. I want you to be just so absorbed in my characters and they're battling the dragon or whatever it is that they're doing, that it's a part of your life, that this is an adventure that you're participating in, not an English professor grading a paper. Right. And that's But there are writers who are very lyrical, very literary, kind of poetic writers that you really do need to savor their prose, that that's what you're getting out of it is how beautiful their sentences are. Those kind of books are not good audiobooks. That that because you, when you're doing an audiobook, um, I mean, you're driving or something else is going yeah. on. You don't have the full attention to understand how the words are put together and go, oh, what a beautiful sentence that was. And then you get in a car accident. You know, that's, <laughs> that's not what you want for an audiobook. The type of book you want for an audiobook is a gangbuster adventure that you can just, just be involved in. Absolutely. With regards now, since this is the Writers of the Future right. podcast, I do want to talk a bit about that too, because um, you're quite the success story that... I want to be able to claim as much of it as I can. <laughs> through the you right have, future. you have for 25 years. <laughs> exactly, or, so. or more. So a bit about your trajectory as a writer. I know that you started just when you came out of your mother's womb, you, you wrote your <laughs> first much. story. So a little bit of like, you've been a writer since the get-go. Yeah, I was, I'm one of these people that never, ever, ever had any question of what I wanted to be. When I was like five or six years old, I went, I want to write stories like the science fiction movies I was watching. And my whole my whole focus of my life was reading books so I could learn how to write books. And and I I went into my dad's little typewriter in his office when I was eight years old and kind of plunked out a monster story when I was eight. And I kept writing other stories. When I was a freshman in high school, I wrote my obligatory fantasy quest novel with the magic sword and the evil villain that you had to go in across the map to destroy him. And, and and I did all that. And I took English classes and I just, I read and read. And I got, I remember, I think it was a sophomore in high school that my parents got me the best Christmas present ever. They gave me a subscription to Writer's Digest magazine. <laughs> and so every month I'm reading what it is to be a writer. And I, I I actually didn't say. I lived in this little tiny town in Wisconsin, a little farming town, which there was nobody that had the same interests as me. Nobody even read comic books. Or I remember I read I read The Hobbit when I was in eighth grade, and I just loved it. And I just wanted to talk to people about The Hobbit, and they all wanted to talk about the University of Wisconsin football games and stuff. And and nobody talked about Lord of the Rings and nobody talked. I read Dune and there was nobody to talk to about Dune. Um, This was before social media, obviously. So you, I mean, then you might remember pen pals. You could actually get pen pals of somebody that, but, um, but I always wanted to be a writer. And, but when I went to college to be a writer, 
and I took some some classes, I kind of got discouraged because I was so fired up. I had read all these books and I'm studying them and and I'm learning how to how to write the books. And the English teachers kind of sapped all of the magic out of it that they were they they wanted us to read and study boring books and and I I went Finnegan's Wake really does anybody really want to read this and like can't we read Rothership down instead and and so I I kind of got to the point where I didn't want to learn how to drain all the blood out of my stories but I wanted to learn the stuff to write about, sort of like um, I, one of the metaphors I use is that if you if you want to be a great chef, you need ingredients as well as cookbooks. So, and I thought if all you did was take English courses, you're getting a lot of cookbooks, but nothing to cook with. And so I majored in um, physics and astronomy because I wanted to write about science fiction. But I also minored in Russian history because I kind of loved the epic fantasy aspect of, of, you know, the Vikings and the um, Mongol conquests and the uh, Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great and all this stuff was just interesting things to me. And so I, and I took history of medicine and I took psychology classes and all these things because I thought you needed to know all this stuff to get your writing right. And I started submitting stories to magazines when I was 12 years old and just sending on, I'm getting rejected because I was a 12 year old kid writing really bad stories. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, my, my 50th story was better than my first one. And my hundredth story was better than my 50th one. And I started getting published in these little, um, small press magazines. And, and I, you know, like I said, I wrote the fantasy quest novel, which, you know, it was great practice. I, I typed 350 pages, you know, that they insert adventure here, they'd go across the map and they'd find the swamp monster and then they'd find the the ice giants. And, and you know, that's it's what you needed to do. And, mm-hmm. and it was great practice. But then I started getting some more serious short fiction published. And it was 1984. Five that the contest was first announced. It's the first book it was announced earlier, but that's the first book was. Published. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure I submitted the first year that it was announced. That oh, here's this great contest and and um, and prize money, and of course everybody wants the prize money. But what really got me was the workshop. That I mean, I'm living in this small town in Wisconsin. I don't know any writers. I don't. I don't have any writing instruction. The writing class teachers that I'm talking to. All they want to talk about is is Fathers and Sons by Ivan Turgenev and and The Stranger by Albert Camus and I went well I want to know about Stranger in a Strange Land and Dune and <laughs> so when I saw the the um, specs for the contest I thought I got to submit to this and because the winners not only get the prize money and the publication which at the time just being published was a really big thing yeah. but I wanted to spend the week with these these big name science fiction authors who were teaching me the stuff they knew how to do. And, and I really, and so I submitted and submitted, I think the total was 18 times I submitted and I got a finalist and I got honorable mentions and I never quite made the, the final cut, but then I sold resurrection Inc. So I selling a, a professional novel uh, disqualifies you from being an amateur writer. It's like right. I, I can't go to the Olympics anymore because I play for the pro team. And is that still a rule? I think they got rid of that rule. I think they got um, rid of that rule. And so, so I kind of took off as a writer, but I kept in touch with the contest. And and you had me come in as like a guest speaker mm-hmm. to do like I did some productivity lectures and some other things. And and I mean I just and this way. I as as a guest speaker, I got to sit in on the workshop that I wanted to go to, <laughs> so um, I kept coming year after year, and then I got made a judge. It's something twenty five years ago or so, uh, and so I've been. I think I've missed one in thirty years. Yeah, and this is just a. This is one of our things. It's every year. It's writers of the future, and there's very few things going to get in the way of us coming to that. Which is great. We very much appreciate that. And just the business of writing, which you successfully communicate, because this is something that you don't get in, in just regular journey as a writer. You need to, you know, the fact that with the contest, and it treats a bit differently as well when I was speaking with uh, 
Tim Powers and Jody Lynn and I, just mm-hmm. before they started the workshop, Tim said, this is different than Clarion and any of those other types of workshops because to be in here, we, we see you as a professional. So now we're going to give you mm-hmm. more on the craft of writing, but also on the business side of writing and how to make it as a professional writer. Well, you come out of this week pretty much ready to face the real world of publishing. And other, uh, I'm not going to knock any of the other ones, but other ones, they like might really give you a boot camp on how to write the best short story. But if you have the best short story, but you don't know what to do with it, or you publish it somewhere and you get, screwed because you signed away all your rights or something like that, well, then you're not prepared to be a writer. And uh, I think there's, especially now, these days with all these indie publishing and all the opportunities that a a writer has that I never had when I was starting out, um, there, there are a million more things to learn. It's no longer you just write a story and send it somewhere and never pay attention again. It's that's step one, and you know that it's a nine course meal, and it, and you're not just making a piece of toast; you're making a nine course meal. And there's so much you need to learn while marketing. And we do a whole section on on marketing and social media and promotion and getting reviews and all this. Stuff. I never had to worry about that stuff. And right now, too, it's a major deal. On I make it as a target. I, I attempt a minimum of three media for every winner. Mm-hmm. So they can get the idea of how to do radio, TV, and print. You know, we have the podcast. I'm, I'm, I've done 11 interviews so far this workshop week, and I'm trying to get everybody into it because this also puts their name out there and their contact information to be able to assist them get that launch. Well, and and I run a publishing house too, Wordfire Press, and we've had 400 and some books published and 100 and some authors, including several Writers of the Future winners. In fact, we just signed a new book by John Haas, Writers of the Future winner from a few years ago, signed it this morning. Really? That's uh, awesome. So, He's such um, a good guy, by the but way. But <laughs> we, when we are looking at these books, so somebody will send in a book uh, when we're open, we're we're kind of full up right now. But when we're open, somebody sent us a book, and then we have like first readers go through it, and if they love it, they come back and go, "This is a really excellent book." Then I'll start doing my detective work. So here's the author, and I'll look on Facebook, I'll look on Twitter, I'll, I'll Google them, I'll look for their um, social media presence, I'll look to see if they got a website, I'll look to see if they got a newsletter, all of this stuff, and. One of the phrases that I'm, and I'm going to teach it tomorrow, one of the things we do is the invisible man can't sell books. You might be the most brilliant writer, but if you have zero platform and zero audience and no fan base and no interaction and no, how are you going to sell the books? They don't just magically sell themselves. Right. And we, at least in Wordfire, we aren't a traditional publisher. We're not going to print up thousands of books and send them out to bookstores and hope somebody notices them. And if they don't, then I take 60% returns back. We are selling, like hand selling, it's boutique, that that we want our authors to go to conventions and meet people and sell their books. And they want I want them to... Um, Call their local library and say, can I give a talk at the library? And I'll sell books after that. That this isn't a cooperative venture. It's not like like in the 60s and 70s where the author really did just write the book and send it in. The publisher did everything else. That's not the case anymore. you right. gotta you got to carry your own weight. That's exactly right. Now, publishing has obviously changed a lot since when you first became published. And it continues to change a lot more. As just recently occurred with, with Brandon Sanderson, just prior to that, Hugh Howie, as mm-hmm. we were talking about. So you've got traditional, you've got indie, and you've got self. How do you, how do you play the mix on that? Because I know you're not just you know your publishing house right. in Canada. Well, I'm I call myself a hybrid author. That they're like I'm writing Dune novels with Brian Herbert. Um, those go to Tor. Tor is our main publisher. Tor has been a great publisher. They've supported us all along, and that's a book that really does need to be thrown out into all bookstores all over the place because there are Dune fans everywhere, and they'll find it and they get the up. distribution channels. Right? Um, ECW Press, which does the three Clockwork books, they're a Canadian publisher. Rush is a huge Canadian fan base, but also. Because they're a Canadian publisher and Neil Peart's Canadian, the government subsidizes arts for Canadians. And so the publisher 
is able to produce these jaw-droppingly beautiful books for a reasonable price, which if this was a trade edition in America, that if, if Tor did a book like this that we're looking at right now that you can't tell because it's a podcast, but the, I mean, there's, there's copper foil embossed in this. It's, yeah, that's it's at least blue leather. Dollar yeah. production cost. Yeah. In that. So, um, I, they did have to actually bump the price up to $39 on this. It's a big fancy volume, but, but I can see any normal publisher here putting it at $60, $70, but oh, yeah. they, they get some help from the government. So they, and they are the perfect publisher for this. Sure. I have WordFire Press. I could have published it myself. There was no contractual obligation to give it to ECW Press, but they can do things that I can't do. Now, if it's one of the things that I just did at WordFire, I've published over 150 short stories over the past few decades in my own career. And I thought, I really need to pull together like the the selected short stories of Kevin J. Anderson. And there are 100, and, I think we pulled out 140 of them. And no publisher, want, no, I mean, Tor didn't want to do that. Bantam wouldn't want to do that. It's a short story collection by me, but I wanted them. Mm -hmm. And so I've got one volume of my fantasy stories, one volume of my horror dark fantasy stories, and two volumes of my science fiction stories. They're beautiful hardcovers. They're all there. Everything, I wrote a little introduction for each one of the stories as how I wrote them. Uh, and those are great books, but those are perfect books for me to publish at Wordfire because... I can sell them directly to the Kevin Anderson fans because they're my fan base and I have my newsletter and everything else. It's not going to sell a million copies, but it's going to sell to the people who want to do it. That's right. And the real advantage with all that is that I'm, I'm getting a fair amount of Hollywood interest in various things now. And they all want – and short stories are a good thing to try to sell for movies or TV shows. Yeah, Fort so, the Monument. Yeah. So now so – now, <laughs> So now instead of me digging out like little photocopies of old magazines where they were originally published, I can just send the PDF of – and here's my collected stories. Read them and see if you want to do an episode on these. And uh, it's really paying off that way. Oh, that's great. Now, what about foreign uh, editions, foreign publications? Um, well, I have, my, I have my New York literary agent who sells the foreign translation rights to various things. So that's, that's another case where I'm, I'm traditional. I have an agent who does this stuff. Um, I, random indie author, Kevin Anderson, I don't know the um, Italian publishers or the Chinese publishers. Well, actually, I do know the Chinese publishers. Um, and um, through connections, in fact, connections from Writers of the Future, I've got a Ukrainian publisher, and my book was supposed to come out this month. But he was by, going to be here. I know he was going to be here, and, and he's, he wrote me just two days ago. My Ukrainian publisher uh, is stayed in Kiev to be fighting, and he's got his wife out to safety in Poland, and he's there. I'm going, this is my publisher, and he's in the streets of Kiev with a rifle trying to drive the Russians Right out. next and, door to Sergei. I don't know if you well, see his social posts. Well, our, his. our former <laughs> artist winner, Sergey, was always a big political firebrand yeah. in Ukraine. So, yes. anyway, you know, after that, after yeah. doing this for from Writers of the Future, all the friends and connections I've made here from my other publishing uh, connections, that we know a lot of people in a lot of different walks of life and a lot of different uh, influencers, and you keep trying to put the puzzle together, and the puzzle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes. Now, how did you bridge over also into audiobooks? So that's, because that's another aspect of publishing. That's the fastest growing, or has been the fastest growing segment of publishing. And that's what saved its bacon a few years ago when it would have been mm. um, down for the year. It was the audio uh, segment that actually put it up while the, the hardcover mass market and, and paperback were, were down. Well, audiobooks is one of the bigger challenges, though, because as as Wordfire Press, I can put up an ebook in no time. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I've got the text from the author, we proof it and we clean it up, and there are software apps that we can lay out a really pretty book and generate an ebook. So it's, I mean, if we're full court press, we can put out an ebook in a couple of hours if we have to. Right. Um, and based on that, we can also do print books because they're, we know how to lay them out. There are, it's called print on demand so that if you order a book, then they will print it and send it to you. All of that stuff is pretty minimal investment on our time. So we can create the ebook and the print book pretty easily. 
An audiobook, though, is a whole different thing, as I was telling earlier about You just narrating. get a microphone, take your ACX, and yeah, go in there sure. and just sit down and just read it and do it. Well, and see, that's the problem, that... that just, just if I was gonna Clockwork Destiny, if I'm, if I'm, and I'm the narrator, so I don't pay myself for my hours. I just have to pay the mm-hmm. studio time and the engineering time. Um, you're still looking at a few thousand dollars to get your thing recorded, and it takes a long time. Like I said, thirteen hours of me sitting with my butt in the chair talking to the microphone, and then thirteen hours of proofreading that, and then all the engineers' time and all. So it's. It's not easy to make an audiobook. And we, there was a service called, well, is a service called ACX, where um, narrators who are trying to break into the business, you could kind of put your book up saying, hey, anybody want to be the reader for this book? And then you would get a volunteer saying, I'll, I'll read it. And then we would split the royalties. Mm-hmm. Well, they started to learn, though, that a lot of these don't make very many sales. And so they're spending, 20 hours in the studio and they're getting a thousand dollar paycheck and it doing the royalty split thing is getting a little bit harder now because they understandably want to get paid for their time. Sure. But if I know that the audiobook's only going to sell $500 worth and I can't spend $3,000 to get it made. So that's, that's kind of a challenge now, except there's always something that comes in from left field and what we're seeing right now is they're really, really pushing AI readers for audiobooks. And you might think that, that you'd get Stephen Hawking's voice reading an audiobook, but they're not that bad anymore. They're getting to they're getting better and better much, and better. much better. And, and looking at the curve of progress, I would say in another three, four years, you might end up having an, an AI reading your audiobook that sounds, say, 90% good you know and then you also have ai translators too like for me if like if i'm publishing my kevin anderson short stories it would kind of be nice to have say a french translation of that well i can't pay a french translator for it that's many many thousands of dollars and it's not going to sell thousands of dollars worth of stuff but we now have these smarter and smarter ai translators that will just scan the book translate it into french and it'll be 90% 90% good enough, and many readers won't notice the difference. And so that may break through a roadblock on translations and on audiobooks. Yeah, it's good until you hit those idioms. <laughs> well, but, you know, human translators don't always get those right. I know. It's, either. It's we a have, real, yes, we need. One that I noticed um, Doug Beeson and I wrote a big thriller called Ill Wind uh, a few years ago, and every chapter heading was was a song title, like a classic song title. And one of the chapters was the old Beatles song, Good Day, Sunshine. So, good day, comma, sunshine, meaning it's a good day outside, there's sunshine, blue skies, yeah. all that kind of stuff. That's what the song is. So, the, the, stor- the title of the chapter is Good day, sunshine. The Spanish translation, and I know very little Spanish, but I know some, and the Spanish translation of good day, sunshine was, buenos dias, el sol. Good good day, Mr. Yeah. Sun. Yes. No, that's not, it's not meant hello. It meant it's a good, yeah. Yeah, I'm going obscure there, but that's a human translator who didn't get the reference. Yeah, so, that's why it's important also like, because quite often the translator is, the language of translating is the first language and English is the second language right. quite frequently. So you're gonna, they're not going to have those nuances of the English language. But here's one of the other things, though. With, with the huge explosion of indie publishing, like everybody throwing their book up on Kindle and everybody making their really, really bad covers from getting a piece of clip art and 25 different fonts to put on the cover, and they look really bad. Uh, we've sort of... The, the mass readership, I'm not talking about like the, the very sophisticated readers, but, but the ones that sort of do three books a week and just grab them and, and read them, it's sort of lowered 
the bar of their expectations. Like, yeah, I'll put up with some typos, and I don't really care how good the cover looks. And because there's um, there's a one of the things is called Kindle Unlimited. It's a it's um kind of like Netflix for books that you do a subscription. And you can just read as many books as you want every month. Mm-hmm. And and it's just like a pipeline. And it is really made for what we call whale readers. The um, I remember the old ladies in the library in my small town that would bring in grocery bags of Harlequin romances. And they'd trade them in and get another grocery bag and take them back home. And they would just read them like people would eat potato chips. And... Kindle Unlimited is for these people that just are voracious readers and they just want every book with dragon in the title and they just read them and read them and read them and read them. And that's great because they're huge consumers. They're not the people like Clockwork Destiny that are going to hold it and and pay attention to the beautiful leatherette cover and the embossing. They just want the next one. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because they're paying for those books. And if you're an author, you want somebody to keep reading things, but it's made things like Kindle Unlimited and just all of Amazon and things has really opened up the field to a bunch of readers that were not being served before because publishers didn't know how to advertise to the whale readers. The publishers didn't know how to, how to reach these people that, um, that were casual readers and they just were great mass consumers of book after book after book Mm -hmm. because they were such consumers of books. If you're reading 10 books a week, you're not buying brand new $10 paperbacks for those. You're going to garage sales. You're going to the library. You're doing things. But Kindle Unlimited, they pay for because it's a subscription, but they get all they want. They can read 100 books a month if they want. So it's the whole field is changing so much and and it's exhausting to keep up with it. <laughs> but that's one thing that's really good about Rise of the Future. It does attempt to do just that with, you know, the judges who are obviously trying to stay remain cutting edge with what you're doing on because we don't have just author judges, mm-hmm. you know. Um, like yourself, um, Dean Wesley Smith with what his mm-hmm. what he does. Um obviously uh, Brandon's not here this year, but he'll probably be here next year. He's created a whole new, you know. Well, and what's funny is that so Brandon Sanderson just did the world record-breaking Kickstarter of all. He practically doubled the Kickstarter record of all time, um, and for before books. that, for books. But before that, Brandon blew us all away because he did a Kickstarter that hit at seven million dollars, and now seven million just seems like oh, he only did seven million dollars on that one, because uh, he did forty-two million dollars on the one that just closed. But that what a game changer, and you know that's well, a whole other episode about Kickstarter. I, I have one running right now. It's gonna. I mean, this will broadcast well after it's over. But but is for a brand new novel in my Dan Shamble Zombie PI series. Um, Which is a fun series, yeah. by the way, everybody listening. Yes. Well, it, it is really yeah, it's just, one it's of my fun, fun things. Yeah. It's, it's laugh. But the thing is, it was, this came out from a traditional publisher, and they did three books, and, and we can talk on some other time about what they – but they these are fast, funny books that mm-hmm. I thought should have come out fast, like twice a year, like a, another fun episode. But they wanted them more than a year apart. Um, they were disappointed in the ebook sales, but then they charged $15 for the ebook when they charged $15 for the paper book. I went, well, that doesn't make any sense. No wonder nobody's buying the ebook. And, yeah. and so they wanted to drop the series after three, and I kind of begged and groveled, and they did one more book. Uh, and then I got all the rights back, and I'm publishing them myself. But the fans, the fans of this series right now are just have just paid me three times what the traditional publisher ever paid for one of these books because the fans want a new one. And they're basically saying, we want to join the VIP club. We want to get this book six months before it's published. Yeah, we, and, we're waiting to get it. I mean, Emily signed this up right, right, right when and, we first and that's, saw it. It's just one of these, it's an instant direct connection between the artist and the fan base. Then that's what Brandon has done so well is that he's always, he's not like this aloof writer that nobody can ever get in touch with. Brandon goes out and he plays Magic the Gathering with his fans when he's on a book tour and and stuff. And he's been cultivating this relationship and they have paid it back in Mm -hmm. spades. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and 
snotty authors, beware, because if, unless you learn how to kind of take care of your fans, then it's not going to turn out well for you. Exactly, exactly. The, it's definitely changing right now in the market, and that's why we try to keep up with it on this on this podcast. I had well, I had some great interviews I was able to do as a result of Superstars. I met some great, mm-hmm. great people and had some really you know fascinating interviews about tracking your royalties you know and well you got to do it all now you didn't used to have to do it yeah absolutely so for the aspiring writer because you definitely have you've had a a a trajectory that you've followed um since five years old Mm -hmm. and um, obviously you've made that success and work for you with your own castle now and monument but on on the um, the subject of of writing itself, because it has changed a lot. What was what's some of the, I guess, best advice that you'd like to give to the aspiring writer of like to dispel some of the old standards of well, this is these are the three simple steps to getting published, and that those three simple steps along since well, you've got to keep up with it. And there there are so many resources. There are so many Facebook groups. There are so many. Um, social media clubs there are so many um support groups and and even the writers of the future has um you have a whole discussion part of the web page where mm-hmm. people can Before ask him, questions yep. it is really really imperative for you to make the effort to learn your business that nobody cares about your career more than you do and you need to understand how it works and understanding how it works is more than just understanding how to plot a story you got to understand the industry. And we, um, a whole different subject that we don't have time for, but um, I'm also running this whole graduate program in publishing at Western Colorado University. Uh, we, we just capped, we're full up with a double cohort this year. It's our largest one ever, and it's our fourth year in the program. Um, and we're recording this right now at the very beginning of April. Uh, we've never filled up before June or July before. And so there are more people that are coming in because they want to have this knowledge. But the thing is, so I'm the professor teaching these these mm-hmm. master's students. Our textbooks, and I'm doing air quotes here, our textbooks are like last month's podcast of something, um, somebody's Chris Rush's blog, or because textbooks are they're too out of date. This stuff changes too much, and we have a very active like private Facebook forum where somebody will post, um, look what just, Ingram just changed their, you have to stay on top of it. You can't, and and people keep asking me like, Kevin, what's the best way to get an agent? I went, well, I got my agent in 1986. Don't ask me how to get an agent. Ask somebody who just got one. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, because it's, everything's changed. And, you know, we can't be old farts and say, I don't like change. Well, it's going to happen whether you like it or not. So, yeah. so I would rather be a mammal than a dinosaur. That's seriously intense wisdom. <laughs> so, Writers of the Future has been around. It was created by Owen Hubbard in 1983. What do you see the impact that it's created on the field of science fiction and fantasy? Because we got people, like I said, 120, 140 countries around the world listening to this podcast. So, what's this impact that that it's created on science fiction and fantasy, and why should somebody take advantage and enter the contest? Well, it's, um, what year are we in now? Is it 38 is about ready to release. We're halfway through year 39 on the contest. And, I mean, it, it's almost one of those, the, the answer is self-apparent. It, it's, it's no longer the first couple of years of the contest where we sort of have to be defensive and justifying and say, yes, this is a good thing. It's like, if you can't see after 38 years what impact this has made, then you're just not paying attention. That the the sheer number of people who got their first their first kickstart from from uh, writers of the future just the the connections that people make at this workshop but i'm i'm actually going to go bigger because it's because of the writers of the future philosophy like we were talking before was to support new writers to help them out to to form a network so that they could learn stuff and share information and and hey i've heard this editor's opening up for an anthology and then that that goes over there that philosophy was exactly the same thing that um, I did with 
Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush and Nina Kariki Hoffman that we all got together based on what we saw at Writers of the Future. And we networked and we helped each other out. And then Dean Smith has his WMG masterclasses where they've got a whole cohorts of people that are now helping each other. And I've got my Superstars Writing Seminar, which is going to be its 14th year next year with with five, six hundred people have come through that. And they all help each other. And and like they tell two friends and then they tell two friends. And my um, graduate program in publishing that that we've now got groups of people coming out from that. And all of this we're instilling into their their mindset that um, a rising tide lifts all boats. It's not competition here. It's not right. if you get published doesn't mean that I don't get published. There, it's that's not what it's all about. And we're sharing information. We've also we've almost become like this this guerrilla army of people who are understanding publishing faster than traditional publishers understand it. And uh, another huge one is a, a group called Twenty Books to Fifty K. It's a gigantic conference that happens in Las Vegas every year, but it's also huge. Facebook group and they've had international conferences, their logo is a rising tide lifts all boats. And the whole thing is writers should help other writers. Mm -hmm. And I think Writers of the Future back in the 80s was one of the first things because at the time, it was kind of the competition to another thing called Clarion was, was the writer... But Clarion was not about writers helping other writers. It was the, we're going to put you through hell week and military boot camp, and if you don't survive, then you can't be a writer. And we, I say we for Writers yeah. of the Future, we never had that philosophy. It's the, we're not out to knock you down and destroy you. We're out to support you. We're out to make you a better writer. We're out to help you understand how to be a career writer. And I, I think the success is self-evident. It is. Yeah, I've got a copy of the very first Writers of the Future book um, where we had our, selected by Robert Silverberg, Theodore Sturgeon, Jack Williamson, Roger Zelazny, and, and Algis Budras. Uh, Seal Moore was in there, just amazing author. And uh, Greg Benford was also one of the first writers. And one thing that Owen Hubbard said there is the culture is as rich and as capable of surviving as it has imaginative artists. And he really took that seriously and just, um, he just, he acknowledged all the judges that went into it. And um, my special thanks also go to Algis Budras for the invaluable work he did in editing and putting this, together this book. And my heartiest congratulations to those they selected for this first volume. I am very proud to present the winners. Good luck to all other writers of the future and good reading, Elrond Hubbard. And that's totally the, what he had as his intention. And we've been trying to stay true to that. And over the years, you know, we just stay true to that, you know, mantra of, of what mm -hmm. we're trying to do with this thing to provide and now it's that. been so long. We're writers of the past. And <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, you're very much, I had somebody recently post saying, um, I would have thought you had someone uh, younger as judges. I said, really? Most people want to have, learn from people that have been there and done that and have gone through all the different ropes to be able to share what they've learned. And they said, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Thanks. Well, but the other thing is that um, not all of them, but but a lot of us judges like me and Dean Wesley Smith, and they're, we are really, really trying to keep on top of things. And we're doing the stuff that other people are. We're not just like, well, back in my day, we did this. Yeah. It's they, Well, last week I did this. Right now... I've got a Kickstarter running and it's doing great. Dean just finished a Kickstarter last week. We're on top of this. We're not like old farts using wooden movable wooden blocks for printing presses. We're, exactly. we're trying to do this. So exactly. All right. Well, this has been great speaking with you, Kevin. It's um, any last word you'd like to uh, say about what we've just been covering there that I didn't ask you, and then the last last thing is how somebody can actually find you. All the different places. Well, I think it kind of goes back to that as a writer, your job is to never stop learning. You always keep pushing the envelope. This isn't a, I know how to do this now, so I'll just keep doing it. You, I know how to do this now, and I have to keep up with the changes because it's going to keep changing. Um, I would suggest you should learn from other writers and help other writers. And uh, like I keep saying, the rising tide 
lifts all boats. Um, if you want to check out some of my stuff, my website is wordfire.com. And again, to get some of those signed books and a, a pre-release copy of Clockwork Destiny, it's wordfireshop.com. And they're all signed there. That's awesome. So like I said, I'm definitely looking forward to the uh, audiobook. I want to hear, um, I haven't listened to any of the audiobooks. I want to hear Neil on the first one and Kevin on the last one. All right. Thank you. Yes. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks.